Gateway, welcome. Uh, today we are in Mark chapter 10. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to flip or tap your way on over for the reading of God's Word to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. And if you can and you're able, uh, Wherever you're at, whether you're at a kitchen table or on your couch, uh, if you're in your car, then you're listening, and uh, please do not stand right now. But if you can and you're able, please stand out of honor for God's word. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat now. <laughs> so at, at first glance, this passage may not strike you as such, but I think that this is a timely word for our community. And yes, of course, God's word is living, it's active. The spirit can and often does stir our affections for Jesus at surprising times. And really, anytime we show up, God is there. He's making himself available to us through his word. But sometimes your heart will be so stirred by a, by a passage, your affections will be so stirred for Jesus that it's like God has given you the gift of himself all over again. And, and in that moment, you, you see and you experience and you feel the breath of God's love, his peace, his power, and you see it all afresh. Well, that's how this passage struck me. And I didn't expect this to happen. But I think this is a distinct word for our community in this season. What I mean is that if we're willing to listen to Jesus here, if we're willing to receive like he instructs, I believe that God here is inviting us to come, to come afresh like little children, to remind us that God's heart is an inviting heart. And so to that end, let's just, let's just pray. Let's frame our time by asking God, the God whose heart is for us and toward us uh, to stir our affections for his son, Jesus, through the power of his very personal presence. So spirit of the living God, Jesus, Father, we come to you. And we come to you as those who are in need of you, and yet sometimes we're reluctant to communicate our needs. We, we come to you as, as those who have hurts and pains and questions and doubts and joys all in the same week, month, day. And sometimes those never break the bounds of our own hearts. We, we store them inside in this season that is crippled by confusion and fear. So Lord, we, we ask that you, through the power of your word and the spirit of the living God, that you would lead us to Jesus, that you would be our comforter, that you would be the one spirit who spreads the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. And so we come to you now to receive from you. Soften our hearts, I pray. Amen. So to remind us, 
And to just frame out what we're going through today, Jesus is not initiating a new flow of thought here when he's talking about children. Rather, he's continuing this confrontation specifically with the disciples over their worldly ambition and And he does so by elevating the lowly, the lowly in their world, elevating them to the high places in the kingdom of God. And this is not Jesus being vindictive. This is Jesus painting the picture of reality as it actually is. This is the beauty of God's upside down kingdom. And so to see this and to see that this is not just a fresh flow of thought from Jesus, let's pick up where Jesus started this. And so if you have your finger in your physical Bibles, you can go ahead and Keep it there and flip back over one chapter to chapter 9, starting in verse 33. And this is what we read. And they came, this is Jesus and his disciples, to Capernaum, their home base. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they, that's talking about the disciples right there, They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. See, right before this, Jesus, he announced now for the second time that he would be delivered into the hands of men who would give him over to death. This is a scandalous thing for Jesus to say. He's going to say it one time further yet before he actually goes and is handed over. But in response to this second announcement, the disciples they immediately begin jockeying for status and significance as though there's going to be this vacuum in power and they need to get in there to fill an absent seat if Jesus is going to die. And what we see is that Jesus' question in verse 33, it exposes this selfish ambition in their hearts and really it exposes their opposition to the kingdom of God. Enter the child in verse 36. Let's just listen to this again. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So in this moment, Jesus is elevating the lowly in the kingdom of God and encouraging, challenging, opposing the hard hearts of the disciples. Essentially, he's inviting them to see the upside down kingdom and start walking in accordance with that. And so with that in mind, flip back over to chapter 10 in verse 13, and we meet the disciples here again. And they were bringing children to them. And now this is not the disciples. This is likely parents bringing small children to Jesus. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. So we do these little recaps Because at the rate that we're moving through the gospel according to Mark, these teachings are weeks, if not months apart at this point. But this would not be the case for Mark's original audience. You see, the best that we can tell, Mark is writing to these Jesus communities that are embedded in the the Roman world about a generation or so after Jesus's resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. These are communities who on the first day of the week, uh, likely in the late afternoon or the evening, they would gather together 
to share a meal, what these communities called a love feast. And they would share words of knowledge from the Holy Spirit. They would sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to build up one another in love. And if they had it, perhaps a letter or maybe like the gospel according to Mark, a biography of Jesus, then they would sit and they would listen and they would see this literary work performed. So Mark 9 wouldn't be weeks removed from Mark 10. It would be minutes removed. And in turn, the disciples' rebuke of the parents and the children would be seen as it truly is, as an act opposed to the ordering of God's good world by Jesus, an act opposed to the kingdom of God. And before we we really dive into this passage, we would do well to remember that in Jesus's day, children are not romanticized as they are in our own. See, uh, there's no first day of school pics on Instagram. There's not billion dollar industries that are catering to the play needs of a child. That's just not going down. Children have no status. They're meant to be seen and not heard, and hardly that. that that's not to say that children weren't loved by their parents. I'm, I'm sure that was the case in many instances. Rather, I say these things to remind us that times were very different. See, here's an example. Under the protection of this Roman law, this patria potestas, the father had ultimate control in a family. It would be the patrafamilias. He would symbol the head of Rome who would be Caesar himself. And so the father owned everything. He owned the people. He owned the kids. He owned the wife. He owned the property. So he could distribute what he had as a gift in that framework. And when he died, it would go to the one to whom it would be inherited, the one who was given the gift of inheritance. And in this framework, the father also had the right in the protection under this law to enact capital punishment. So these are very different times. The the risks are entirely different. So to to say that it's just like, it's kind of tough out there, it doesn't really get to the point. See, it's not just a lack of agency within this Roman framework that's startling. There's also disease and wild animals. I mean, the infant mortality rate in Israel alone in this time is around 30%. If you knock that up to the age of 16, it was likely six in 10 died before that age. See, so the people who are bringing their children to Jesus, they are up against brutal odds. And for Jesus, children are not a waste of time. They're not insignificant. They are not without value. So, so by rebuking the disciples, he's, he is flipping the tables of cultural paradigms. And, and you see, this is, this is the point. In God's economy, it is the helpless who become the heirs of all things. Not those who have, those who do not have, the last become first. And we see this in the next verse, in verse 14. Jump down there with me. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, which if, if you read a lot of books or if you don't, that Jesus is pissed. <laughs> And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So if you remember from a few weeks back, we talked about the development of the child and Jesus's, uh, Mark's portrayal of Jesus here, that the child is certainly a child, but it's also 
one such as these, or one of these little children, or these little ones. So the child is taken on this metaphorical image of anyone who's vulnerable. So for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And Jesus's words, they stand in stark contrast to the day that he's living in. Another rabbi in Jesus's day, Rabbi Dosa, is known for a teaching that that goes like this. It says, morning sleep, midday wine, children's talker, chattering children, and sitting in the assemblies of the ignorant, put a man out of the world. Jesus basically did all those things. He's called a glutton and a drunkard. He's receiving children. He's actually commending that as the paradigm of an apprentice of Jesus, of a disciple, to receive one such as these. Essentially, Jesus is a man put out of the world, and anybody who walks in the way of the Jesus is is a person put out of the world. This is in stark contrast to the cultural paradigms of Jesus' day. We actually see it and see how drastic this is in the latter part of verse 14, where Jesus says, for to such as these belong the kingdom of God. This is the central thing here, folks. The kingdom of God and its in-breaking reality is at the center of Jesus's life in ministry. And if the kingdom of God is still at this point, kind of like fuzzy Christianese for you, think about it this way. The kingdom of God is where God's will is done 24-7, 365. It's, It's the place that John the Seer in Revelation will talk about where the tears are wiped away, where all that was not is. It's where the completion and the renewal of all things come together in the presence and will of God. That is the kingdom where peace and justice reign in all of their glory. That is the kingdom of God. That is at the heart of Jesus's ministry. And at the center of that reality, are to such. Let's say that again. Are to such. And that sounds super weird. Jesus says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Children, the vulnerable, women, these are the ones that are centered in the conversation. The lowly have the highest place. The kingdom of God, according to Jesus, belongs to the vulnerable and the voiceless. And so Jesus's indignation, it comes because his disciples are misrepresenting the heart of the kingdom of God. And I think it's it's crucial that we sense Jesus's indignation. So let me tell you a story. Uh, when, when Jess and I had Griffin, it was a bit of a culture shock for me. What I mean is I was not accustomed to the things that come with a small human. So you get Uh, toys and clothes, and then there's more toys. And then you get uh, like grandparents who love the small human and they start giving you more stuff. Soon enough, you live in a small house and it's like, it's been occupied by this kid. It's crazy. Uh, In 2008, there was a gal who wrote this whole article uh, about kids taking over the world. She called it a kindergarten, which I thought was hilarious. And she gives this as an illustration that their stuff is just everywhere. This was happening in my world, culture shock. I had no idea that a child needed things developmentally in terms of play. Uh, Like I thought, hey, maybe they just need some things, but certainly they don't need all this stuff. Like most of this is peripheral, right? Like those are the questions that I'm asking publicly to Jessica and friends and family. And now periodically, Jess will kind of poke fun. She'll, she'll make a joke. Maybe she'll be on a phone with a friend. And she would say, yeah, Kyle just say that 
the only thing a kid needs is a spoon. And in one sense, I'm thinking, kid would do well to just have a spoon, and you could do so much with that. But in reality, I'm, I'm neglecting that there are developmental needs that kids have. They need some of these things. I've had to reckon with that reality. Here's my point. Well, funny, the other night, Jessica made this very statement. And, and I thought, hey, that's a bit of a misrepresentation. Like, I've grown here. And so I, I shared that with her, and she agreed, and she changed her tune. Um, I was not indignant by any means. Like, this is the lowest rung of misrepresentation. But I did feel misrepresented. And when we start to see that, I think we can begin to see why this is such a helpful reality, because we have been misrepresented. Maybe it's an employee to an employer. Maybe it's one friend to another, a spouse to a spouse, a partner to a partner. In some way, shape, or form, at some point in our life, I imagine in our collective conscience, we can go back to a moment when we felt misrepresented. And this was such a helpful practice for me because I was able to see and then feel this. That if there's any person in the world who I trust to tell the truth about me in the world and what I'm like, it's Jessica. And in this very small thing, I felt misrepresented. And if I can feel misrepresented in a thing as small as this, how much more Jesus and his disciples? See, Jesus' disciples, or better yet, this word apprentices, these people who were to be with him and to become like him and to do what he did, they missed it. And when they scold these anxious and desperate parents seeking the blessing of Jesus, the disciples scold the leading citizens in the kingdom of God. And remember, children bring nothing to the social equation, and yet Jesus centers them in kingdom life. He's indignant when they're blocked from coming to him. Why? Well, to see the response, look, look down at the next verse, verse 15. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. See, Jesus is essentially setting up this statement as a mini teaching. Any, anytime that Jesus starts a statement with truly I say, what we're about to encounter is the heart of God. So these are moments that we attune our ears explicitly to what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus breaks out. Truly, I tell you, he's doubling down on this point to reveal God's heart. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. This is why Jesus centers children and the vulnerable in the kingdom of God. And this is also where it gets confusing. See, many of us have grown up hearing this passage taught, perhaps you yourself have taught this passage in a Sunday school or something like that. Then, and the curriculum usually goes as follows. You elevate the virtue of children, you command anybody who's listening to embody this virtuous life of a child, to pursue innocence, to pursue trust, creativity, carefree living, because we're too stressed out, something like that. And while these things are beautiful and they're often embodied by children, I, I mean, my, my, my kid will just run around and jump on the couch. He'll have the greatest time doing nothing and everything. And it's like, yes, there are little to no cares in his world. How beautiful that is. And while these things are beautiful, that's not the full picture. Children are also selfish. 
There are these mini narcissists. And the Bible has a bit to say opposing self-interest. They're demanding. They're irresponsible. I, I, could, I could go on, but I think you get the picture. So what's Jesus' point then? Well, perhaps it's about receiving the kingdom of God. And, and you're like, well, well duh. Well, what's the point? It's about receiving the kingdom of God like a child. So, so are you saying with childlike? No, 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 with no status. See, it's certainly not that evidence of virtue in a child's life ranks them highly in God's kingdom and therefore we ought to live in kind. That, that's not the thing. It's not the virtue of the child. Jesus' point is that j- children have nothing to bring and so they have everything to gain. That is the point. We bring nothing. We bring nothing. Because in Jesus, it's all been done. So we don't have to do it anymore. (laughs) The, The trying is over. The striving has ceased. A child gets that. The vulnerable gets that. The needy, the helpless get that. They come with nothing because in that place, that posture of humility, you have everything to gain. Or to say it another way, they come to receive Jesus and the blessing of the kingdom of God. I mean, think about the passage again that we're in. The children, they can't even bring themselves. They are utterly dependent upon the care of a family to bring them to Jesus. This is how we come to Jesus. I mean, how many of us came to Jesus that way? a curious conversation with a friend, a book recommendation. Maybe somebody just gave you a Bible. That was it. And then God graciously drew you to himself. There's always invitation in the gospel. There's a bringing along. There's a pleading. There's this this burden of someone's heart on your behalf. We did not get to God by ourselves. God is graciously calling out to us. The rocks themselves will cry out to us if no one else will. He is desperate for you. The children couldn't even bring themselves. They were brought by others. This is how we come. And in Jesus' day, this was, man, this vision of the kingdom of God was so radically different from how other people conceived of the kingdom of God. I mean, this is just not how it quote unquote worked. I mean, in our day, of course, the religious community was diverse. I mean, so true with Jesus' day. Uh, But when it came to how God's Messiah would roll on the scene, there was a bit more consensus. The, The idea was that the Messiah would come, the anointed one would come as a warrior to take on the oppressors. In this case, it would be Rome. He would throw off the empire, the oppressive rule and regime, and then he would turn Israel into a leading global superpower, like global domination. But does this sound like Jesus? Does this sound anything like the Jesus that we've been tracking with week after week in the gospel according to Mark? If it it does, if you're like, yeah, I'm down with Jesus, the the one who's going to bring global domination, then we're reading Jesus entirely different. And I would submit to you that that's not the Jesus of the scriptures. See, Jesus wanted to die for his enemies, not to kill them. And, And spoiler alert, that's why he's crucified. He's not crucified for saying, love your neighbor. He's crucified because his vision of the kingdom of God ranks the lowly above the noble. It takes the things that aren't and makes them what they are. This is Jesus's vision for the kingdom where the last are first and the first are last. It is upside down. 
And in verse 16, we read that Jesus not only gathers the children to himself, he blesses them. And I think this is huge because um, you and me, we kind of miss this idea of blessing. It's quite significant, though, in Jesus's day, and I think it can be for us as well. So let me just linger here for a moment. Like when we hear blessing, no one's really using this except in the church, unless in a social or cultural uh, circumstance, you're required to bless someone when they sneeze, which isn't you actually blessing them. See, for Jesus, a blessing was an act, like a, a physical thing. To invoke God's favor, it would be a way to pass on care or covering, in the, in the case of the children here, pr- protection from injustice. It would be the way that someone would invoke divine favor over someone to speak God's shalom, their peace over them, so that God's peace and presence and healing would rest in those people. And the inner mechanics of the kingdom of God, it elevates and then blesses the children. That is the things that aren't becoming full. That is renewal. This is the extension of God's love. That is the place of blessing. And I think this is a place that we can actually recapture in our hearts and imaginations in the life of the church today, to not just say, bless you, but to physically to pray for someone, to meet their needs, to be willing to listen, to be present. And I get that this is a lot. And it is a bit weird because, you know, child mortality rates are not what they are. Today aren't what they are back then. I mean, it's like less than 1% in North America. So these aren't, we're not like, we don't feel these anxieties. We're not pleading the same way that people would be then. We don't see holy men or rabbis and seek out blessings. It's not our cultural paradigm. So what does this mean for us? Well, let's just start here. If, if children and the vulnerable matter to the kingdom of God, then they ought to matter to us. If children and the vulnerable matter in the kingdom of God, if they're center in the kingdom of God, then they ought to matter in the life of the church. So, So let me just say this, if you have any children in your life, be it biological, adopted, foster, mentor, neighbors, like your friend's kid, and if you'd count yourself as a follower of Jesus, as one apprenticing in the way of Jesus, then there are two front-facing implications for us. First, bring those kids to Jesus. And you're like, okay, Kyle, um, big theological misstep. Jesus is risen. I know, I get that. Also, that was called a a pastor's joke, so bear with me in that one. So what do we do? Okay, bring them to Jesus. We have as a first priority to bring our children to God in prayer. If you have no idea to like where to start or what that even means or how to pray or what to pray or why to pray, let me just... Let me just invite you to consider this prayer from this great preacher's mother. This is Charles Spurgeon's mother. This is what she would pray. Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. This is one doozy of a quote, is it not? I don't know if you've prayed a prayer like that for a friend, a family member, a child. Um, This is a mother who during the evening prayers with her family there, would lay bare her burden to see her children come alive to Jesus. She did not hold back. And I, 
I want us to see this prayer because I don't want us to, to hold back either. In this prayer, we encounter a woman who not only knows what she's praying about, but why she's praying. And, and, and there's a distinction there. There's a difference between the what of Jesus and the why of Jesus. She knows that in Jesus there is life and life to the full. She knows that life came through death, namely death on a cross. She knows the what about Jesus, as I imagine you and I do. I bet we could pass a theological test about the what of Jesus, that, that Jesus died on death, canceling the penalty for sin. We even know that Jesus rose and ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those who have given their allegiance to him. We, we know the what about Jesus, but we don't know the why. See, Mama Spurgeon, she knew the why. To remain in sin is to remain captive to sin. And captivity to sin is slavery that gives itself over to death. Jesus came to liberate the captive that they may live now. And Spurgeon's mom wanted the blessing of Jesus for her children. So she came. She came feeling the desperation, maybe not of mortality rates or social pressures, but she came with the burden of the life that she lived. She wants that for him and for his siblings. So she calls out to Jesus on their behalf in their presence because she wanted the captive set free. She wanted them to live now and forevermore. And we, we, we pray for our children and our nieces and our students because our hearts yearn for them and know, like to, to know them and not just to know them intellectually and transactionally, but to, to experience the liberating power of the gospel. And here's the tension of this first application. In our life with Jesus, man, if, if it's simply intellectual, if it's simply this cosmic transaction and that, co and that transaction has little to no bearing on how we live our lives, what I mean is if, if you were to evaluate your life and it looked no different from your neighbor who's a, a functional atheist, there's something awry that's gone. Like there's something wrong there. You see, if that's the case, then Spurgeon's mom's prayer is just weird to you. Why would you pray that? Here's why. And I'll just use myself and my boy. Like, I don't just want Griffin to know about Jesus. I want him to experience the power of Jesus. I, I want there to be like a release of generational bondage that he is set free from and into the power of God. I want him to see people released from addiction. I want him to see people healed, like physically healed. I want him, as Paul would say, to know the power of the resurrection not just to think well of it. And this is actually where we get to the second implication of this text. And the word that I really think the Spirit is speaking to our community, specifically Jesus' words, do not hinder them. See, the disciples are rebuked for assuming that certain people are prohibited from coming to Jesus. And I don't, I don't know if they're trying to keep Jesus, like keep the blessing for themselves, or perhaps they're afraid of being displaced or, uh, or anything like that. Maybe they're, maybe they're just uh, afraid in general. Any guess is just that. It's just a guess. But what we do know is that they stood in the way. So the second implication is to get out of the way and into the way. And here's what I mean. 
out of the way of the weak and the vulnerable and into the way of love. And let me just get at this with a question if I can. How many of you are here because someone at some point invited you into this community and onto this like online church thing? Here's another question. Would you invite someone else? And now immediately, whatever your response is, let me ask this follow-up question. Why? If your response is no, let me just graciously invite you to consider that you're hindering the kingdom. And that's, that's a heavy thing to say, so I'm not going to stop there. Because here might be your responses. But Kyle, the community is too messy. We, we, we don't have a permanent space. The liturgy might be awkward for my friends. They're not really familiar with the, the church rhythms and stuff like that. Jesus says, do not hinder them. Let them come. There is so much freedom for us here. Ours is not the responsibility of what happens in their hearts. You can't save anyone. That's Jesus's to do. The Spirit brings us to life. He spreads the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. That's not for you or for me to do. What is our responsibility is to not hinder them. And you know, we don't need like a religious person to stand in the way. Perhaps it's, it's just the emotional baggage we carry. It's the simple, guilty conscience that we carry because our life is still riddled and littered with sin. See, there's, there is something to be said there about what hinders us. So just ask, ask this question of yourself. Be, do a genuine searching of your heart. How might I be hindering? Am I a hindrance to myself? Am I a hindrance to others? And it's not to be self-deprecating. It's just to be honest. See, if the gospel is as good as we say it is, and we believe that it is, then no matter the mess, no matter the location or the music or the liturgy where the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed, resurrection life can break out. See, Jesus is crying out in this moment, come. He's crying out to you. He's crying out to me, come. Jesus is always on about this. He's always saying this, is he not? If you're tired, come. If you're hungry, come. If you're thirsty, come. If you're knocking on death's door, come. Do you have some status? Come. You have no status? Come. Wherever you are at, come. So church, let us no longer stand in the way. I think that, that it is time for us to live into this identity of disciples who are helpless where our weakness is actually the place of our strength because it is the helpless ones who've been made the heir of all things. See, the love of God is calling out to us, and, and I think Paul captures it beautifully in Romans chapter 8, and we read this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever we think is standing in the way, 
Whatever we, if we think it's too big, it's not. It is not. The reality of the gospel is that God gave himself. He gave himself so that, so that we could be reconciled to him, so that we could be brought back to him, so that we who are caught in the clutches of sin that give way to slavery and death could be set free. See, the why of Jesus is that the life, the resurrection life of Jesus can be lived now. That is the why. That we are in genuine need of release from the bondage of sin and that Jesus has it on offer. So that is why Jesus is indignant. That is why he says, do not hinder them. That is why he says, come to me, because in his presence, the weak, the helpless, and the vulnerable are blessed. That is where we want to be, is in the blessing of Jesus as the weak and the helpless and the vulnerable. 